0: Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books in History. I'm Marshall Poe, your host. Each week we pick a new history book that we find particularly interesting, and we interview the author of that book. This week I'm very pleased to have Harvey Schwartz on the show, and we'll be talking about his new book, Solidarity Stories, an oral history of the ILWU, the ILWU being the International Longshore and Warehouse Union. One of my favorite bumper stickers reads, Unions, the people who brought you the weekend. I think that nicely captures the contribution of organized labor to the American experience because unions have, while they've had a a somewhat controversial history in the United States, they have contributed mightily to our well-being and certainly the well-being of working people all over the United States. So we should be very happy that Harvey Schwartz has gathered these interviews with members of the ILWU. They are terrifically interesting. If you are a fan of the writing and work of Studs Terkel, then I think you'll be a fan of this book. And without further ado, here's the interview. Hi, Harvey. Hi, hi, Marshall. Uh, how are you today? Oh, I'm fine
1: today. Yeah, we have um, nice weather out here too. Is that right? Well, I hope you. it's nice back in Iowa.
0: Yeah, thank you for mentioning the weather because I, of course, always ask, as our listeners know, um, I should tell our listeners that we have Harvey Schwartz on the show today, and we'll be talking about his new book, Solidarity Stories, An Oral History of the ILWU. And while we're on the topic of the, the weather, I should – Also tell people that it's quite, quite nice here today. Uh, My my wife and I walked to work and it was uh, in the twenties and uh, for Iowans that's very temperate. What is the uh, temperature there in the East Bay?
1: Oh, it's probably fifty today. When we had, <laughs> and the sun is out. And when we had thirty uh, about a week ago, everyone complained like a son of a gun. Yeah, no, and every, no. you know, you couldn't tell anybody from the Midwest though
0: because they they think we were spoiled. Yeah, no, you know, it's funny. I've said this many times on the show, but I left California because I didn't like the weather. I think I'm the only person that ever did. <laughs> I enjoy, you know, again, it's it's a son of a strange thing. I enjoy living in a place where, if you go outside in certain seasons. There's a reasonable probability that if you stay there, you'll die. <laughs> there's, there's, and there's no time like that in California. There's just uh, no, just in the high Sierra mountains. No, that's exactly right. So, Harvey, why don't you um, begin by telling us a little bit about yourself? Tell us your life story.
1: My life story. Well, uh, right in Five now, minutes. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Uh, right now, I, um, I I still do a lot of work for the International Longshore and Warehouse Union. Um, I've worked on their newspaper quite a lot that is doing articles for them. Those articles became this book. I also, over time, have done a lot of oral history interviewing for the Labor Archives and Research Center at San Francisco State University. But when I was in the Army, um, and this was a long time ago, I um, didn't like being treated as an Army private. I was probably spoiled college boy and so on. However, I was also in the South at that time. And uh, this was when the Civil Rights Movement was just around the corner, and I put a few things together, and I thought, I don't like how these folks are being treated, and I don't like how I'm being treated, but I get out of this in a sh- <laughs> just a little while. Yeah. These folks don't get out of this situation. So um, it changed my life really drastically, and that headed me in the direction that I that I uh, have gone. Um the moment that I got away from the Army, I joined the Civil Rights Movement and uh friends of SNCC actually was what it was in the North, mm-hmm. but it was a Civil Rights Movement activity. Uh, and I looked toward going to graduate school. I had a brush with it, but uh, I came back with a vengeance after the Army and looked at people's movements and social movements and things of that sort. Um, and uh, gravitated toward, uh, I got an M.A. at University of Washington, went. then I went to uh, University of California, Davis, where David Brody was. Mm -hmm. Um, And even these long years ago, as now, he was a great American labor historian. Mm -hmm. Uh, And that really uh, was was the direction that I took. Um, It was really kind of a given for me after the Army and after the Civil Rights Movement, Mm -hmm. that I would try to um, follow people's movements, social movements, and... um, so I've done so, um, and I got kind of lucky around 1980. The, uh, the union partnered with UC Berkeley. The union's officer then, uh, well, the newspaper editor Danny Beagle, and engaged uh, uh, Professor Wellman, David Wellman, at, uh, then at the Institute for the so- Study of Social Change at UC Berkeley, and they cooked up a beginning H uh, grant idea. And by that time, I'd finished a dissertation, had a book called The March Inland. On the unions organizing drive in the 1930s, and so we had this beginning age grant, and we uh, we went toward interviewing people. The grant was to do oral history, mm-hmm. and um, we ended up doing um, a couple of hundred interviews, and then that really that really headed me, um, you know, in the direction I took for the rest of rest of my life. I guess um, we got a lot of help from the from the Longshore union at that time, a lot of help from UC, but uh, really the union helped us a great deal. And um, I just uh, just went from there. That's, that's what really ultimately led me to this book.
0: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I see. You know, I remember in 1980, uh, actually it wasn't 1980 when I was there, but in the mid-80s, yeah. when the union was active at UC Berkeley, uh, I remember being somewhat perplexed by it because I had come from the Midwest where, at least in the part of the Midwest I lived in, which was uh, Kansas and Iowa. Um, we didn't really have a union culture, as far as I knew. Even though there were there were meat packing plants and there were oil refineries and large um, large uh, grain operations, but there was no union activity. I don't recall any of it where I grew up. But then, when I yeah, like I say, when I got to UC Berkeley, I I, I met union people for the first time, and I've had quite a bit of uh, interaction with them um, recently, and their uh, strong presence. And a positive presence here at the University of Iowa now, I can say that. I know it's funny because we have faculty members who uh, never thought of joining the – there is a union for professors, believe it or not. Oh, sure, um, yeah. Yeah, and uh, none of them ever, including myself, ever thought of joining until quite recently. (laughs)
2: <laughs> it's very interesting. Yeah,
0: Things go uh, down the tubes, and all of a sudden everybody wants to be a member of the union. So, uh, the, the, yeah, the irony in, in that must be very sweet for people such as yourself who are telling us all along that we needed to do this.
1: Well, that part of it is uh, is very sweet. And um, the problem, of course, is uh, that the movement, generally speaking, has sort of been in irons, to use a nautical term, for a long, long time. Yeah. Uh, by the way, in Iowa, there was a, a strong labor movement movement. Um, there were a couple of guys who did Halpern and, and um, Horowitz, who did a book. I think it's called. Um, I'm trying to find it on my shelf. Meat packers and world history, packing house uh, workers, and their struggle for racial and economic justice.
0: Yeah, it's um. Yeah, meat is a big thing in the Midwest, obviously. And I, I had friends that work in, in uh, worked in meatpacking plants, and uh, uh, so, so I know that. And incidentally, recently we here in Iowa had a a really kind of a tragic situation in which the largest kosher packing house in the United States, which was totally uh, unorganized and um, stocked to the gills with illegal um, sure. foreign workers, was uh, was shut down uh, by the Fed and um, everybody's, I think, been indicted and a lot of people have been deported. And, um, yeah, there was a situation in which uh, – I guess people acted rather poorly. <laughs> I, would, mm. I would say the management of that packing house acted very very badly. Well, they're going to suffer now. I think so. Anyway, yes. why don't we you, uh, why don't we begin um, uh, talking about uh, the um, the topic of the labor movement in the United States in general by by framing it in the more uh, in the broader topic of, of the labor movement in the late nineteenth and early twentieth century in the United States. How, how did the labor movement get started in the United States? Well. What a big question! Uh, <laughs> Sorry about
1: that. In the in the most sweeping way, you can say that it's a response to industrialization. I um, mean, obviously there were craft organizations, uh, there were guilds and things, and at the at the end of the uh, uh, end of the 18th century and into the into ni- the 19th century, you can look at the beginning of the shaping of a modern uh, labor movement. Really, oh, even before the American Civil War. But the labor movement that we've come to know really is kind of like a product or a response to industrialization and to what became really the degradation of workers, um, you know, forced into into labor discipline, forced into um, situations where the hours were long, the wages were low, the conditions were miserable. Um, immigrants staffed all of these jobs uh, in meatpacking and steel and in Railroad and so forth um, in the late 19th century, and you had you had some sweeping movements. The thing that most people forget now, or most Americans maybe never were taught, you know, was that really from the 1870s anyway, through the 1930s until World War II period, uh, the question of labor, the so-called labor question was really uh, very, very important, like what was going to happen, what was going to become of the movement and of the country itself. There was a lot of violence and the concern with violence now, it's terrorism from abroad, but in the, in the late 19th century, early 20th century, there was you know, always a question of uh, labor unrest. Uh, we were going to have violent confrontations. How could uh, that be uh, modified in some way? People like Theodore Roosevelt were concerned with things like that. You had a big sweeping movement called the Knights of Labor, reaches zenith in the 1880s, and was basically destroyed after after a railroad strike was lost. You had a very strong um, uh, uh, party, mostly mostly craft workers, mostly white uh, folks, mostly English speaking, under the American Federation of Labor, which uh, dates in the mid 1880s, and. Um, they looked at the idea that, well, what can you do to help workers? Well, the only one you can really organize and keep organized is the white skilled worker who can stop the machine, nobody else can do so. So the women and the minorities and so on were kind of left out of that pattern. They were challenged in 1905 through the period 1917 by the the IWW, the industrial workers of the world who said we need a revolution, we need to get rid of the capitalist system, we need to get rid of exploitation. And so they were really a challenge to the AFL as well as a challenge to the ma- mainstream economic system and structure of power. They really did not succeed in the long run in one level because the government destroyed them during World War One because they said, you know, you're unpatriotic, you're not for the war effort, and so on. Uh, be that as it may, through this whole sweep, there's a question of what is to become of the workers and what is to become of the system. Um, when you get into the 1930s, uh there, there is the Great Depression, and there's a response against the economic system, and there's criticism of the economic system, and so you've got the big organizing drive that sweeps through the 1930s. Um, my old dissertation director, Dave Brody, argued that um, he had a system of welfare capitalism in the 1920s, in which people like uh, folks in Detroit were given. Uh, options like um baseball tickets to the Detroit Tigers and other better more meaningful bennies um, in a sense to bribe the workers to keep them quiet and when all that collapsed and their wage cuts and their layoffs and so forth come the Great Depression then there's a boomerang effect there mm-hmm. and the workers become militant at least they will follow militant leadership and organize organizations so you have the old AFL, um organizing and the new organization that came out of it, that's a long story, under uh, John Lewis, the uh, uh, Committee for Industrial, Organ- for Industrial Organization, the famous CIO, changed its name to Congress for Industrial Organizations in 1930. as I recall, but it emerges in '35, and there's a big sweep across the Midwest and across the East. And in the West, in a way, coming out of the wildly tradition to some extent, you have the uh, movement in 1934 that reaches a successful point with uh, Harry Bridges and the West Coast longshore workers. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And um, um, they really encourage organization throughout the rest of the West. Mm -hmm. And uh, they have a somewhat more left tradition, more Mm -hmm. more progressive tradition really almost than anybody else. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, That's a rather sweeping statement and people could argue with it, of course. But, um, you know, what I'm trying to say is there's this big sweep and there's a big concern and once you have a law passed, the National um, uh, Labor Relations Act in 1935, to, to some degree institutionalize labor relations to some degree, there are certain rights to organize, organizing. They're, they're granted under the federal government, under Franklin Roosevelt's New Deal. You begin to move, not so much in the 30s, it's not so clear, but by World War II, you begin to move toward a, a kind of an accommodation of labor to some degree that lasted until fairly recent times by the government and also by even by some corporations. Um, once you have contracts in major industry, rubber, auto, and steel and so forth, once you've got those contracts and the workers are sort of in place and they're no longer restive and, in the same degree, to the same way, in the same way. And there are many, many subtle changes and alterations that come about but these are very sweeping statements. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and In the war period, the labor movement in general agreed to a no-strike pledge during the big war in exchange for which uh, corporations were sort of obliged by the government to give certain concessions, not to fight organization, for example. Mm -hmm. So you go from 8 million or so organized by 1938 to something nearly double that by the end of the big war. That organizational pattern a lot of people don't really recognize, but what they do recognize is the big change from 1930 to to 1930 or so from about 2-3 million to... uh, Something like eight million people in the labor mm-hmm. movement, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. both CIO and AFL. They were split in the thirties. Um, the CIO comes out of the AFL. Um, is really a challenge to it because they are argue, arguing that we need a wider pattern of organization, not just focusing on the skilled white male, but you have to go after uh, industry workers who are semi-skilled and are um, in mass production industry. Mm-hmm. And that's a terrific change in in the in the. Um, uh, Mid 1930s that, that helps sweep of organization, but by the end of, end of the war, in many ways, the F of L. and CIA were not all that different. Although they, uh, there were reasons for them to stay apart till 1955. Mm-hmm. Now, recently, there's been really a um, a kind of uh, of a breach of the old agreement that we would kind of live and let live and. Uh, the labor movement, you know, have receiving the stick in the eye has not been particularly successful so far in in, in its response. Mm-hmm. Um. But you know we're still in the middle of things.
0: Mm-hmm. No, I see. I, I know that uh, for a fact because I can see what's going on us, going going on around us uh, right now. You know, for example, you mentioned clerical workers are, are are organizing now, and and that was a big change for the unions. And uh, and other yeah. people like university professors are organizing. So uh, it it is a time of great uh, tumult. I think in the. Um, in 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 the history of the uh, of the organized labor movement. Yeah. I, I also you know the thing about it is that, that struck me by reading reading the book is the the kind of conflicted relationship that Americans have with organized labor and unions in general. I, I one of the one of the interesting um, aspects of it is is uh, that you know from a very early date that that. Um, association with uh, the international labor movement and particularly the communist movement was was really kind of a thorn in the side of the American uh, labor movement, that, that, that they kept trying to distance themselves from it, um, again, ambivalently, but they never really successfully did uh, in, until basically at, at the 1950s, I think. Um, and that, that certainly shows up in the history of the uh, I L W U, and this is in contrast to Europe, where you know the ties to socialist parties and communist parties were embraced. Here, we we always were very suspicious of any of this, um, and, and it and it, uh, it left a mark, I think, on on American labor labor history that that somehow we strongly associated, I don't know, organization with somehow international communism, and and you know that, that this was something we really couldn't get away from. Um, Although I think we are now, so
1: well, it's hard. I don't know if we are now. It's hard to say, but there's no question but that you're right. I mean, especially after the Russian Revolution, you know, there was a fear of 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 outside communist um, ideology, European ideology. Uh, You know, it's always been difficult. In a sense, it's been an uphill battle. It seems to me all the way, and you can go back to the to the. To the late 18th century, and you look look at uh, Hector Crevier, who wrote about America as being a new land and a new race of men. He used the word "men," and Mm -hmm. uh, the reason was that we had the rights to property, and Mm -hmm. we had individual property, provided you with the ability to vote in your, uh, if you were a white male, in your your colonial legislature, and and later on in the the new, um, in the new uh, state state houses. And uh, your liberty was really based on your property, because property holders were the people who voted. So there's a real association with private property as being the, the key to liberty, and I think you can trace that back back to the to the late 18th century in, in in this country. And it's always been an uphill battle. You know, the idea of collectivism has always been something that's very very difficult to di- to uh, to uh, the the idea of criticism of it has been very difficult to overcome.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And um, I also think that the other side of it is that employers were successful in giving labor a black eye and saying, you know, they're all a bunch of thugs or they're all a bunch of communists. And, um, you know, the mass media is more and more, it becomes more and more important, the television, the rate, whatever, um, emphasizes that. It seems to me if you have a show for the most part, I mean, there are a few things like Mar- uh, like, um, um I can't think of her name but the the one the famous uh mill mill movie um in in which uh you know the the labor organizer is a woman and she's she's a heroine but by and large they're cast either as thugs or the victims of thugs or as a wild eyed crazy communist throwing bombs and so on and uh that's that's the image I think most people have, which is actually quite false but the media will will either push that if they do anything or else ignore labor and you know bridges always said harry bridges was a leader of the west coast longshoreman he said you know you um you have no other place to put your faith really um in the economic world except in in, in a labor movement
2: mm-hmm.
1: in a labor union and uh you know getting that across is very very difficult if it's ignored or if it's uh re- really um um made into something that's 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 untrue that's sort of monstrous mm-hmm. i just think um it's It's always been a been an uphill battle, and of course there was an, there were internal movements the c i o kicked its left wing unions out in nineteen fifty mm-hmm. um many people think that blunted the the militancy of the movement and the, the, the movement is still suffering from that. Because all the militant folks got got kicked out and their union shriveled up. Of the eleven that were kicked out between forty nine and fifty, um, really the only one that really survived intact, really intact, was the ILWU, was a Longshore Warehouse Union. Mm-hmm. The United Electrical Workers survived as a as an entity, but became way way smaller and lost a lot of their power and influence and membership.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, but you know, you can go back and you look at the violence, for example, of the of the miners' movement in the in the uh, late uh 19th century United States, there were some killings of uh, extremely brutal uh, foremen. Um, there's always been a concern about that kind of thing. Uh, there were a few bombs that went off. Nobody know who put the bombs out there, for example, during the, the Wilsonian Presidency. And A. Mitchell Palmer, who was then the Attorney General, went in this big anti-red campaign, and there was a big anti-red campaign in the United States people were in the east coast were put into uh put into um prison without without charges and stuff this is a great red scare of 1919 1920 mm-hmm. partly it's a response of the bolshevik revolution um partly it's a kind of an anti-iww there'd always been an anti-iww impulse in the decade and a half before that um and, uh, you know, the second the second great red scare going to call it that was, of course, McCarthyism. Mm-hmm. But it's always been, as you point out, always been an uphill battle for labor. Um, and mm-hmm. I still think uh, I still think um, it's 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 still something of a problem for labor.
0: Yeah, it's one of these cases where, you know, uh, with friends like that, who needs enemies? Because, uh, you know, any taint or association with uh, international communism and particularly with uh, the Bolsheviks right. was a. Uh, uh, yeah, a certain yeah, yeah. death in, in the in, in the minds of, of of Americans. And you know, this is a really odd thing. I don't think Americans appreciate how odd it is to say that being a communist is necessarily absolutely and uh, incontrovertibly a bad thing. I don't know. I, I mean, I'm not a communist myself, but I don't think it's a bad thing to be one. But sure, I think Americans sure. really do put it in this in the, in this framework that, that it's a uh, it's a little bit like um uh, not believing in uh, uh uh God and apple pie and baseball. Uh, Absolutely, you know, so it really, really does fit in that category, which is completely strange. I, this is simply not in Europe. This is not true at all yeah. anywhere. Uh, no, no, there is no, no such anti-communist, sort of very anti-communist sentiment like we have here in the United States. And I, I find it very fascinating that that we have put it in the, uh, in the category of things that are uh, incontrovertibly evil. <laughs>
1: well, you know, in, it's re. It what comes out of the twenties is reinforced by the by the Cold War. That whole Cold War yeah. phase. No, that's right. I mean. You know, we were the ones who uh were the most militant really anti communist during the during the Cold War period. We're the ones who carried the ball. Um, uh, you know, it's it's um you can also look at if you want at the I don't know how how important this is, but uh Hofstetter wrote a book
0: about the paranoid style in American politics.
1: Yeah. And there's an aspect of that too, I think, that's maybe some piece of it.
0: Yeah, I'm not a huge fan of that book, to be honest with you, but I, I will agree with you that um, I think all states are paranoid. I haven't seen one that isn't. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I think that's, well, that's, true, that's just yeah. the way they are. You know, I mean, they have, you know, they, they will invent uh, defense and intelligence establishments for um, enemies that do not exist. How paranoid is that? I mean, what? Yeah. <laughs> you know, it's yeah, like arming yeah, yeah. yourself against against uh, against intruders that. That don't exist. I don't. You know. I mean. I suppose there's not, That's not paranoid. But it seems paranoid to me. But that's, yeah, just, I think yeah, that's just what yeah. states do. I don't. I don't. You know. I mean. Yeah. Saudi Iran, well, I, You know. I don't know. It's a very strange thing. But anyway. But enough about Hofstetter. But I mean. I I will agree with you that there is, there is um, something uh, strange about uh, American anti-communism. It it reminds me a little bit of my own field. I know that. Um, you know, I studied early modern Russia for a long time. Early modern Russia. That's Muscovy and. Um, or what it was called, Muscovy. And the, and the Muscovites were really, uh, really anti-Semites, uh, I would say. But mm-hmm. there were no Jews in Russia at the time. <laughs> Not one. They, uh, you know, they yeah. got all of their anti-Semitism. All their anti-Semitism was notional, and you know, in, in a certain sense, the same is true of, of America. I mean, we have a, a we have a communist party, Gus Hall, and all that, and yeah. and, and we ran for president. But but you know, the, the communist presence in the United States has never been large. It's it's really always been compared to European countries, very small, and and also very, um, I guess I would say mild. Uh, oh yes, I think so too. Yeah, oh, communists, sure. communists run for you know, they, you know, they, they run they for uh, election. They don't throw bombs. <laughs> yeah, right, right. And they want they wanted
1: civil rights. You know, yeah. back in the fifties and 60s. Right. They, yeah. they were they they came on the civil rights scene in the twenties and thirties before anybody else did. Yeah. I mean, there were a lot of things they did that were you know good good things. I I try to make the argument in the the last um, s- chapter of this book that uh, here are the contributions that the uh, communist members made to the uh, to the to the ILWU. On an individual basis, you
0: know. Um, yeah, there's, I mean there's no, there's no question about this. I interviewed a fellow, uh, I guess it was a couple of months ago, who wrote about um, basically socialist and communist youth movements in the United States in the 1920s and 30s. And we had a wide-ranging discussion about uh, the fact that really the American communists and, and also their correspondents in, in, um, in Europe were the first to point out that fascism was really a, a, a very real threat and oh, it was not something to mess with. And this was at <laughs> yeah. a time in which, you know, uh the European powers, many of the European powers and and even uh political figures in the United States were they weren't exactly flirting with fascism, but they didn't think of it as something that was uh you know, a, a mortal enemy or something that might do damage, but the communists were always very clear on this, you know.
1: Oh, yeah. No, the communists were very, very clear on it up until 1939. Yeah, not that's right. fact, yeah, that's right. that's right. that was, that was an, an, an issue of the moment, really, of politics of the moment. Yeah, that's right. But, you know,
0: oh, well, definitely. That, um, yeah, that, that was a – yeah, that, that, um, that uh, threw a wrench in the works in a big way, the 1939 Molotov-Ribbentrop Pact. But in any event, let's yeah. talk about the uh, ILWU specifically, yeah. because that's what the book's about. Um, how did it get started? Pardon me? How did it get started, the ILWU?
1: Uh, Right. Well, conditions were just miserable on the waterfront in the 1920s and into the 1930s. There were long, long uh, uh, work sessions. There were kickbacks on the job. There were brutal bosses. There were unsafe conditions. Uh, You used to have to do what was called shape-up Mm-hmm. which meant gathering around on the waterfront in San Francisco, for example. You had to uh, uh, surround the boss, and the boss would pick you and you and you, but not this other person. And the reasons were kickbacks. You know, you'd, you'd provide a turkey or a bottle of wine or whatever it might be to the boss, to the person who did the hiring. There was one story in Los Angeles that a worker told me. He said, um, if you had a nice-looking sister, or a nice-looking wife, and you brought that person to the waterfront to service the person doing the hiring, uh, you could get a job. And he said, I've seen this on this waterfront in in Southern California. Uh, I remember how shocked I was when he told me that. Um, And, uh, you know, the conditions, as I say, were very unfair in terms of the way people were hired. The wage itself wasn't such a problem, the real issue was the hiring system and the brutality of the long, long work sessions. Um, Along came 1933, there's a new piece of legislation, the National Industrial Recovery Act, it had a Section 7A that said supposedly uh, you could join a union and uh, that was the law that the employers weren't supposed to mess with you if, if, if you wanted to join a union. You know, there was there was a big stir there on the San Francisco waterfront. Harry Bridges and his followers began to uh, form an organization. They had about 50 people. They called themselves the Committee of 500, <laughs> uh, which is wonderful. A little, cute little story. Yeah. The, the Bridges had actually been talking union since uh, since uh the 1920s when he came to to the United States to stay. He'd been a seaman, so he'd seen uh, he'd seen. Unions from Australia. He was an Australian by birth and upbringing, and uh, he was aware of the IWW. He actually was a member of it for a very short time in about 1917. Uh, he's born in 01, and he went to sea at a very young age. And um, so he's pushing for it. His friends are pushing for it. As they say, you know, it was in the air throughout the whole era, uh, one degree or another. Suppressed in the 20s, but then comes back in the 1930s. Um, they decided that they wanted to uh demand an end to the shape-up, and they wanted to demand a few other things. And uh so they formed, and they were able to make make a success of it. There was a firing in 1933, and the labor board at that time that existed, uh, a regional outfit, it was, as I recall, I think it's part of the part of the National Disaster Re- Recovery Act system said you can you can um have your union. There had been a company union that existed in San Francisco since nineteen nineteen and it really suppressed a real unionism. That was its function. It was pushed by the employers. They didn't technically control it but they ran league with it. Um now with a new with a new uh dec- decision in nineteen thirty three that uh that The the, the uh, workers' organization, the International Long Association, Pacific Coast Branch at the time, had a right to exist. Well, that changed everything because everybody left the the, uh, the company union. Its nickname was the Blue Book because it had a blue book. Mm-hmm. So the Blue Book lost out, and all of a sudden, everybody joins the real union, which at that time is the Pacific Coast Branch of the International Long Association. And from there, they moved toward having a coast-wide system uh, to bargain with. And bridges insisted that they should have a coast wide contract to keep one port from scabbing on another. in other words, you can't have one contract in one port and a different contract in another port because mm-hmm. people can scab on each other. Not a good idea mm-hmm. um, and so bridges said we're going we have to have a coast wide system we have to have um get rid of this shape up system um and there were some other demands too, but they were able to get a coastwide system going and uh, struck in 1934. Well, the big strike when it occurred was up and down the whole coast, and it uh, was rather violent. Um, in San Francisco, the employers decided to force open the port when when the, when the strike had been on between May May uh, May 9th and, and uh, July July 5th of July 3rd in 1934. They, they drove their trucks, scab trucks through the employer, through the uh, workers picket lines. Uh, they were resisted. There was a lot of violence on July 3rd. And everybody took off, a couple of people didn't, but a couple, most everybody took off uh, July 4th to have picnics. Mm-hmm. So there's no mm-hmm. violence and very little that particular day. But the next day on July 5th in San Francisco, there's this effort to draw by the employers to drive There scab trucks through the uh, picket lines and that created a big uh, response and then you ended up with a huge battle up and down the entire San Francisco waterfront, Mm -hmm. really from North Beach, south, down all the way down toward, uh, I don't know if it quite reached Islas Creek, but it was, you know, we're talking about a couple of miles. Mm -hmm. Uh, There was a huge battle on the hill that is really where the the Bay Bridge is is tied in and that was called Rincon Hill. Mm um tear gas the employers were being provided with 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 tear gas and tear gas guns were being demonstrated by tear gas corporations um <laughs> the employer yeah it was, it was a real battle it was yeah, like it, one news reporter who also reported on the second world war said it was as violent as anything you saw in the pacific during the war ii mm-hmm. many many people were hurt two people were were shot and killed uh at least a hundred went to the hospital a lot of workers who were hurt didn't go to the hospital because they thought they'd be arrested. They were really fighting against the newspapers, the employers, uh, and the government and the police department. Everybody all against them, so it seemed. The only folks who really kind of gave them a little help were the CP, were the Communist Party people, which mm-hmm. is kind of interesting. Yeah. But after this killing on July fifth, um, nineteen thirty-four, it, it, it really public opinion kind of changed and began to move behind the longshore workers because it was so obvious that the employer had caused this by by the brutality of trying to force open the port and then uh, welcoming the police to shoot down the workers and uh, and uh, so forth and so forth and having these tear gas folks demonstrate their wares on the behalf of the employer um so it goes to arbitration finally and the arbitrators conceded that there should be a union controlled hiring hall well, it was supposed to be jointly run, in fact, but the employer in the, in the union, you know, both both uh, supposedly working the hall, was fine and dandy. But the, the kicker was that the dispatcher, the person to dispatch people to work, would be a union person. And so that meant the end of the uh, discriminatory hiring. It meant the, it meant the end of the shape-up. Mm-hmm. And everyone would ultimately go to the union halls and... Um, have a union dispatcher dispatch people to work mm-hmm. and they they got a six hour day to kind of share the work, which mm-hmm. was interesting during the great Depression. They got that in that first contract um, oh they got a few other things too I was going to
0: uh, say we have a we we have a similar sort of thing going on right now here in Iowa where there are these uh sort of Furloughs and collective pay reductions, um, oh, yeah. so, that, so that we don't have to fire anybody. That's that's. Um, I think we took, we're taking a page out of the um, ILWU book right now here. Yeah, abso-
1: absolutely. I mean, it does You know, sometimes that doesn't work. But to share the work idea certainly makes sense. You yeah. would think, but some co- organizations won't go for it because they have to pay medical yeah.
0: coverage and yes. so
1: on. And there reasons, their reasons to mitigate against it.
0: Yep. Almost nobody's getting fired here. I think ten people have been let go over the entire university system. So okay, let me um, step back. Before we talk about um, the nineteen thirties, and I want to also want to talk a little bit about uh, bridges, but there was one thing that I wasn't quite clear on, and I imagine lots of the listeners aren't clear on either. I can't really even wrap my mind around the idea of an uh, a company union. What exactly was it? Well, how was it organized? And uh, you know, that just uh, and maybe it's my generation, but I, I don't even know what that would be
1: well the it the, the reference is to a, is to a union that is really uh, controlled by the employer and so um you go and you meet but you know that the employer controls the situation um you're not really under control under control of of of, of, of preventing presenting demands that the employers that the workers really need uh because you know the employer is really controlling that situation mm-hmm. uh the one that i'm talking about we were talking about in, in the 1930s in the, in the Bay Area, was very, very heavy-handed. I mean, if you spoke up at a meeting in those days, you would actually be ushered out and po- possibly beaten up. Mm-hmm. Um, the officers were people who were handpicked by the employer or worked in league with the employer. Mm-hmm. Now, during the National Industrial Recovery Act period of 1933, under the the uh, Section 7A that allowed unions uh, allowed workers to organize, supposedly, company unions were not illegal. And so the employers jumped on the, um, situation quickly and they pushed the company union, company controlled union between 1933 and 1935. And then, uh, later on the law said you cannot force, a uh, company union on the employees, that that's an unfair labor practice. Mm-hmm. But in the interim, um, it was quite successful in, in 1933 and 34 in many ways for employers to push, to push company unions. Now, on the San Francisco waterfront, you'd had one since 1919. Because mm-hmm. they wanted to make sure that they would keep the uh, real unions out, mm-hmm. and that's how it functioned. Mm-hmm. You, you had to, for example, be a valid member of the company union to get um, uh, to get work in San Francisco.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, for the most part, there are few jobs that were kind of that kind of got away from the company union people. But um, you would be blacklisted if you engage in real union activity. And in fact, Bridges himself was blacklisted in 1924 mm-hmm. for trying to bring a real union. In, um, at the time when the when the when the longshore industry in San Francisco had had company union in control,
0: so, so, so these black, I was going to say I'm sorry these company unions then were really instruments of control. Yeah, yeah they, they, they were not instruments of arbitration to represent the interests of the workers no. in them. Yes, no, quite I the see. opposite. They were supposed to keep real unionism out, hmm, that's and pretty, that's how it would function. Those clever employers. I don't think. Oh we
1: have. yeah, <laughs> it's, you know they're they're we're uh, uh, rem- remarkably um, capable of uh, you know of adjusting.
0: Yeah, no, it reminds me a little bit of. Uh Well, I don't know. There are various countries in the world that have faux-political parties in order to keep political parties out. Exactly. Um, Sure. Sure. (laughs) It's a very clever technique. It looks like democracy, but it isn't. Um, Right.
1: That's exactly how it functions.
0: The other thing I wanted you to talk about a little bit, because I imagine many of our listeners have a certain image of San Francisco and have been to San Francisco, but the San Francisco that you describe in the book and that um, the people you interview describe in the books is just not the San Francisco I remember at all. There are no ships come into the Embarcadero anymore, do they? It all happens in Oakland now. Uh, yeah, so it all moved. Really, to a, this is a this is a San Francisco we have lost. Oh, absolutely. And maybe you could talk oh, about uh, that a little uh, bit.
1: Well, all those fingers, San Francisco was the major port for the coast, really. Um, oh, through the late nineteenth century and through the nineteen thirties, and if you look at the tonnage, it's way, way, way uh, um, uh, weighted towards San Francisco from right right through World War Two period. Um, the waterfront was bustling it was it was booming there were uh, there were uh, gambling houses there were all kinds of little cafes and things i mean you could get everything you wanted along the waterfront in San Francisco at one time and it 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 functioned with uh stores that sold uh, uh equipment for 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 shipping for for long work and so on i mean it was a real it was a bustling booming community. Um, the finger piers that you see that are so cute that have those nice facades in San Francisco, from pier to pier to pier, as you drive along or go along the waterfront, particularly the North Waterfront, um, were terrific in terms of the way they were set up for break bulk cargo handling. By break bulk, I mean hand handled cargo that was that came out of the hold of the vessel or went into the hold of the vessel that mm-hmm. was hand worked in small steamships, relatively small steamships that were. State-of-the-art about 1920, 1915, 1920, the the, uh, the sailing ships are going out, but even in the sailing ship period, uh, in the early steamship period, those vessels would come right alongside those finger piers in San Francisco. So they were terrific for 1920, 1925, and um, and things were booming there. But in the post-war period, particularly after the 1960s, when containerization comes in, those things are obsolete. You need bigger space. You need a great, big, huge container platform area uh-huh. or container station area. And Oakland had the appropriate land for that. Yeah. there were, And so all the cargo moved over uh, to the uh, East Bay side. Yeah. San Francisco did not adjust quickly when the container came in. You know, by that I mean doing something to change those that finger pier system into something that would accommodate lots of containers.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, that wasn't done, so uh, all the cargo uh, runs over to the East Bay. Mm-hmm. I used to encounter people who said to me, "Harry Bridges chased the cargo out of San Francisco." This was in the 1970s and stuff. I would meet conservative people, and we would talk about things, and they would say, "Well, your guy chased the, the cargo over to Oakland." And my response would be, yeah, but it's the Isle W in Oakland. It doesn't matter to Harry; he doesn't care which yeah. side of the bay, as long yeah. as the Longshoremen handle it, and they handle all the stuff over in East Bay
0: too. Yeah, well, East Bay is perfect for it because of the flats there. You know, I mean, it's a kind of a natural topography for those um, yeah. large cranes. Yeah. yeah. Um, and San Francisco is completely ill-suited for <laughs> large yeah, cranes. For the, for the. It's funny though because we still have this. When I remember when I first came to the to the Bay Area, and and I still had this idea of uh. Sailors in downtown San Francisco, yeah, yeah, drinking on leave and all this other stuff. I didn't see any of it, but uh, that myth—I didn't sound a myth. It actually happened. I mean, it uh, it lives on to some extent. Um, so I was in your book. I was nice. It was nice to be reminded that these were actual people doing these things, and the San Francisco that um, that, that is in my mind, and I think in many people's minds, it was a was a, a going concern and is now gone. It's funny because here in Iowa, people don't think of Iowa as a maritime province. It's not. But yeah. you do have Mississippi River towns, and if you go to them, uh, you can see a similar sort of thing. That they sure. used to actually build ships. I mean, they were they were riparian ships; they were river going. Uh, but there was a large uh, shipbuilding industry in these um, river towns. It's all gone now. Um, yeah, were same, yeah same, same here. Yeah, it's all it's all gone. But there was a, you can see the remnants of it. There are big um, brickworks and so on and so forth that you can foundries and that they basically were too big to move.
1: Well, <laughs> yeah, sure. The San Francisco waterfront still has a, a sort of um, Sort of a charming look to it, yeah, it does. you know. Even, even though the vessels don't come in and out, I mean, there's an occasionally yeah. there's a there's a, a tourist boat. What of the you know cruise ship yeah. vessels will come in. Yeah, but it still looks it still looks the part, and yeah. so it's a nice tourist destination.
0: Uh-huh, uh-huh. Well, let's talk a little bit about the um, the 1930s. And I'm, uh, one, one of the things I found fascinating in the book was the independence of the ILWU. For for a moment, if I recall correctly, they did affiliate. With the um, was it the CIO at the time, and then they uh, disaffiliate. Can you explain well, exactly what happened there? Sure. Well,
1: when, one of the things that they did, as I say, in 1934, they were members of the uh, International Longshoremen's Association, which is the East Coast-based longshore union. They were technically the Pacific Coast branch. And one of the problems was um, that the East Coast union had a reputation for. Being, uh, gang infiltrated, and Joe Ryan, who was the president of the East Coast organization, his nickname on the West Coast was King Joe Ryan, but Joe, Joe Ryan was in league with the mob, um, and that uh, history had gone way, way back, a lot f- back to the 1890s. Um, the guys on the West Coast under Bridges said, well, we, 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 uh, we don't want that, and Bridges found out that I believe in the 1908 or close to a contra- uh, not contract, but convention, Uh, agreement that had been made, the West Coast would have autonomy in many ways from the East Coast, so the Pacific Coast branch had some autonomy. And some of the people on the West Coast said, well, we don't want to be part of the International Long Armistice Association because it's uh, it's gangster-ridden and it doesn't have union democracy. Bridges said, well, we'll take it over because we have this little platform here uh, for autonomy, and we're going to make we're going to make use of it, and we'll take over the West Coast, and we'll run it as, in a democratic way, and it'll be clean. Um, and he kind of got his way. The problem was uh, Ryan came out to the to the West Coast and independently tried to solve the strike in 1934. Uh, by going to the employers rather than to the workers, and, and instead of going to the rank and file, he he deals with the employers and said, well, we'll settle it this way or that. And and uh, the union um, the me- uh, members on the West Coast under Bridges disagreed with that. And essentially, there was a big mo- meeting and they booed Brian and Ryan had to leave town. And Ryan says the union's being run by communists and everybody always thought Harry was a communist. Sometimes he talked, you know, like a like a militant and a revolutionist at times. Anyway. I don't think he was a member, but that's another story. But um, what they what they did was set up uh, their organization, and they stayed in the ILA, but it was uncomfortable for the next three years. Uh, finally, in 1937, the West Coast Group uh, left the, uh, the, the, uh, the ILA and formed a new union called the International Long and Warehousemen's Union at that time, and they joined the CIO. Now, the CIO comes along a year after the 34 strike. It comes along in 1935, so there was no CIO for them to go to in 1934 because it didn't exist yet, Uh, and it was more militant and more um, uh, welcoming of minorities as the ILW was, Um, San Francisco and to some of the other ports. there was some exception there, but it was overcome over time. But it, you know, it was it was uh, the, the people here were, were were looking for union democracy. They were looking for progret- for a progressive stance, for an anti-fascist stance, to at least in this port include black workers. So, and the East Coast really wasn't. Um, it was really segmented into. Uh, uh, Irish docks and uh, Italian docks in, in New York, for example. So there were a lot of reasons for the for the split to occur in 1937. Um, it really came about over over a question of jurisdiction. By that I mean um, who would get uh, um, dibs over a certain group of workers. The, the uh, West Coast people under Bridges organized a big warehouse organizing drive, and. Um, uh, Ryan, uh, got the AFL to say that the Teamster should have jurisdiction over, over warehouse workers, not the West Coast longshore workers. And Bridges says, well, we're not going to give up these people. We organize these people as part of our organizing drive. Actually, I did my dissertation in a book on this called The Martin Lamp. Mm-hmm. Um And so, uh, th- then uh, Bridges discusses, ma- discussed matters with John Lewis of CIO, and Brherry becomes the West Coast Regional Director of CIO. Um, and they leave, they leave the, uh, the ILA in, in 1937 and go off and become, you know, ILW-CIO. And they stayed that way until, until the, uh, the, the, the CIO purged the, the left unions, as I noted, in 1949 and 1950. Um, but under the period of the CIO, when the ILWs in the CIO, from 1937 through through uh, 1950, but really in many ways during the 1930s themselves, in the, in the period 1934 when they're still in ILA, until until the war uh, comes along, the the IL, the the ILA becoming the ILW uh, served as a as a kind of a beacon and a model for, for for labor organizing throughout the West. I mean, they helped other organizations, they organized workers and gave them up to the Steel Workers Union and things like that they really in many ways were um were kind of a model for what to what to do i did a short history of uh some carpenters locals and i remember reading in the minutes of the of the uh, carpenters local up in uh uh either velay or santa rosa um, where in in the meeting uh minutes it says uh we have fallen uh, behind uh in the in the mid 1930s, we we've, we've lost our membership, we've lost our power, we uh, we barely have a, a union hall, but the Longshoremen did it in San Francisco. If they did it, we can do it, and so you know it was it was a model, and sometimes mm-hmm. they helped a lot uh, as well. By uh, by the 1940 or so 41 42 period, I, I can recall that that Carpenter organization had had righted itself and expanded mm-hmm. and made a comeback. I mean, so they were a model for everybody, really. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I mean, I, as you probably know, I argue in the introduction to this book that, um, that because of their progressive stance, because they're democratic, because they're clean, because the rank and file has a big input because they, you know, by and large have been inclusive of minority uh, workers of workers. Um, You know, everybody should emulate this, that the whole labor movement, if it's going to make a comeback, should emulate the ILWU. I make this grand statement, which a lot of people uh, is, um, you know, maybe excessive, but I I believe it myself. Mm -hmm. That's why I I said it.
0: Yeah, I mean, you make make a convincing case uh, because it it is quite true, as you said earlier in the interview, that much of organized labor in the United States has a bad name either uh, due uh, to some sort of affiliation with – what are deemed to be evil communist powers, or because of what might be called the Jimmy Hoffa penumbra, in which you know organized yeah, yeah, crime yeah. is bound up uh, with it. Uh, but uh, you know the ILWU, to its uh, to its credit, seems to have remained uh, squeaky clean, and they were the beneficiaries, I think, and are the beneficiaries of that that legacy. I, I wanted to talk a, a little bit more about about Bridges, who yeah. I found to be a, fa- a fascinating character, and um, particularly I, I found. That, you know, he did skirt with – I, I, I don't exactly know how to put it. That's why I'm stumbling over words here. It's not as easy it's, – it's not simple to say exactly what his relationship with communism was uh, he, because sometimes you're right. His rhetoric does sound like something he would read in Mao's Little Red Book or right out of Lenin. But at other times he denies that he has affiliation with them or that he is a, a sympathizer, a fellow traveler. Um, Maybe you could talk a little bit about the way he used this the the, the, the way he used communism, the idea of communism in especially in the nineteen thirties when they, I guess the government went after him pretty hard
1: oh God yeah, yeah. oh yeah no, he was under indictment or under investigation from nineteen thirty five really or even thirty four until nineteen fifty five there were it reached the supreme court in nineteen forty five it reached the supreme court in nineteen fifty three um the government never had enough to make it stick. Uh, But he was charged with being a communist because of of, of what he said. Um, You know, you say uh, he flirted with being a sympathizer. Well, he was a sympathizer. He was sympathetic to the Soviet experiment. He thought with all of its uh, negative aspects, some of which uh, communists in America did not believe for many, many years until Khrushchev made that speech in 1956,
2: Mm -hmm. because
1: I've talked to people who said, we didn't believe it. We thought it was government propaganda, Mm -hmm. you know, that people going to gulags and so on. he was sympathetic toward the Soviet experiment, you know, uh, in many ways. But I personally just don't think he was actually a member of the party. And I, I mean, you can look at what the uh, the archives say in Moscow and so on. I don't know that you can trust what what's said there. Certainly, they would have liked to have adopted him. But I just think technically he wasn't. He probably was not a member. But he himself always said. Uh, 95% of what they say about me is true. I just didn't happen to be a member of the party. Mm-hmm. But so much turned on that little question of whether he was or whether he wasn't a member. Um, and, you know, he was hounded and hounded and hounded, uh, and they were perjured uh, – uh, people who testified for the government against him and the union kept notes on where he'd been various times and they could prove that he he wasn't in a certain spot being in some communist party that somebody said he was there I mean, it was a long 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 period of time and i think part of the ILW's militancy is due in some sense in those years uh... thirties forties and into the fifties in, 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 due to some degree be, because bridges was hounded mm-hmm. you know they used to say he may be a bastard but he's our bastard mm-hmm. And you can't uh, tell us who's going to be our leader and who can't mm-hmm. be our leader. Mm-hmm. You know, but the whole question as to whether he was or wasn't, it seems to me is really um, actually a minor question. The real question is, what kind of a union did he build? Mm-hmm. What kind of leadership did he provide? Um, what kind of decision making did he did he come up with? Mm-hmm. Uh, did he maintain the workers' um, Favor, which he did all those years. He was he was president for forty years, mm-hmm. you know, because he was honest, because he was progressive, because he um, delivered the goods. They also were pretty good at negotiating, and there are a lot of reasons that they were successful. I mean, you can't the employer cannot move the waterfront to, um, you know, to some foreign police state because it, you, know, you still have to move the products across it. Structurally, the whole argument mm-hmm. discussion that we could have there for another hour, but. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, he uh, he was democratic and, and, and so forth. And, and I think, um, uh, you know, that's the real question. What kind of a leader was this particular person?
0: Mm-hmm. No, I agree with you. Uh, the only reason I mention it is that, again, for uh, a person of my generation, and I think, again, for many of our listeners, it's very difficult to come to terms with the idea that someone would be viciously, uh, persecuted and hounded simply because of their formal affiliation or uh, lack of formal affiliation um, with, with a certain political party. Uh, we don't. Yeah. Do, we yeah, don't, do, we yeah. don't do that anymore. <laughs> and so it's it's difficult. to well, we
1: hope put we, yourself, we hope we don't do that yeah. anymore. I'm, I mean, the, the Bush administration might have veered in that direction if it had been able
0: to. Mm-hmm, uh, you yeah, know. You know. Right. I
1: mean, these things. There was nineteen, nineteen, nineteen twenty when yeah. all the, the lot of immigrants rounded up. There was the McCarthy period. You know.
0: Yeah. Right. Yeah. No. I, I. I certainly understand what you mean, and I'm very sensitive to that mm-hmm. as a historian. But I, I'm always fascinated by these occurrences, which really are. Uh, it's just very difficult to put yourself in the shoes of someone that would uh, say, in good conscience and and with uh, full intelligence, that somebody who was a member of the Communist Party should be guilty of treason. That, yeah, <laughs> that yeah, is yeah. really yeah. an odd, really an odd thing to, to to think. Although I think we, you know, as historians and people that are sensitive to. Uh, the difference, which is historical time, I think we have to we have to do that. We have to attempt to understand what what those people were about, which, which is why. I, I sure. asked um, sure. I also am interested in this. Um, I'd never really heard of this kind of purge that took place in. I guess it was 1950, in which the yes. the CIO, um, uh basically cut its right arm off uh, in order to, yeah. to save what they thought was the the rest of the patient. Um, what, what can you talk a little bit about what happened in 1950? This must have been a huge commotion. Oh,
1: it was a huge commotion. Basically, there were, there were, um, kangaroo tr- trials, if that's the right term, uh, rigged up, rigged up trials of the different unions. that were, and the, these were not legal trials as such, or they weren't part of the legal system, but they were trials inside of the CIO. And the decision, uh, Phil Murray, as I recall, was the president of CIO at that time, and I think basically the CIO felt stampeded that if we don't get ahead of the parade, the government will bust us and bust our whole CIO movement. Mm-hmm. So therefore, we have to kick out all the organizations that have communist leadership or we think could have communist leadership or the government thinks might have communist leadership. Mm-hmm. And so they purge the ones that were, that were left-led. Uh, you, you know, you had a conser- more conservative wing. I mean, uh, Murray himself um, was much more conservative in his in his worldview. Uh, more of an accommodationist in his ideology than, uh, say, somebody like Harry Bridges. And, uh, felt, you know, made, well, maybe these communists are bad. Maybe they will overthrow the government if we don't kick them out or God knows what we have to do with them. But they were, be that as it may, they were all, uh, not all, but there were 11 organizations purged between 1949 and 1950. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I think the great, the great, uh, concern, it, probably at bottom of, of the CIO was that if we don't, we don't uh, clean house and the government will clean us mm-hmm. um yeah, and well, lump us together uh, this is
0: a, not an unusual thing in um the american political system i know that the film industry did uh did sure. the same thing in the 19 19- 30s uh, and yeah imposed yeah. a code on themselves uh, so that they wouldn't basically be busted by the federal government and that code still exists today uh, the so w- which is which is interesting what now we've already talked about this a little bit but I want to uh, kind of hear it again and a little bit more about it uh, what happened to these 11 organizations that were banned or exiled or uh, sent to the wall or whatever metaphor you want to use.
1: Yeah. Uh, they were raided by other organizations. They were raided by the uh, CIO themselves. And in some, for example, in the steel industry, the um, Mine, Mill, and Sumatra Workers Union, which was on the, was one of the perceived left unions, was raided. And basically, uh, its jurisdiction was taken over by, and its membership was taken over by the United Steelworkers of America. And um, the, they were rival organizations set up in the electrical industry, uh, so that the United Electrical Workers were, uh, were raided by, by avail and CIO as well. Um, and most of them disappeared. The, the ILW took over the United Fishermen and Allied Workers Union, for example. They, they took over those folks because they were, they were kicked out of CIO. They, for a while, were inside the, the, the ILW. Um uh, cotton Conference workers who had been who had been in the CIO and were were kicked out. They were at that time called the uh, FTA, the f- Food and... You got me. Yeah, they were the they were the old uh, United Packing House workers, United Cannery Agriculture and Packing House workers in the thirties become FTA, Food and Tobacco, I guess something like that. Uh, in, in 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 the postwar period, they were, their cotton conference jurisdiction was taken over by the ILWU in California, so some of them found homes. But by and large, these organizations disappeared and lost their lost their their uh, their identity.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: In the ILWU, the Teamsters raided the warehouse jurisdiction of the ILWU in um, 1950. Um, there was a move inside of the local in san francisco number 6 to have uh, to have to have a a, 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 a cio kind of group set, set up that would be separate from the um from the ilw the teamsters of course were in the old L. And uh, so there's a big raid, and it cost the union a great amount of money to starve off the raid. They lost a couple hundred workers, but they, at that time they had several thousand, and they didn't really lose uh, a very high percentage. But it was very costly, very divisive. And um, in many ways, the the, uh, the budget of that organization took a terrific hit, but in mm-hmm. some ways it never recovered,
2: mm-hmm.
1: even though they survived and and, and, uh, and went along for a long, long time and still exist.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: So, you know, it was very, very costly and very divisive. Um, and one of the things, you know, in many ways that occurred, too, was that in the post-war period, the ILW... This is kind of lesser known, had, had organized a bunch of little beachheads in different places up and down the Mississippi River in Mm -hmm. Washington DC, Mm -hmm. in Chicago they had a local. And in the, in the Cold War period, the, 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 um, which culminates inside a CIO with the CIO purge, the, uh, the union said we, we can't We're being attacked in every quarter from AFL, from CIO, from independent organizations. We cannot maintain these little outposts. We're going to have to give them up. We just can't afford them anymore. Mm -hmm. And so, uh, the move, for example, the ILW is going to move into the South, and so they thought organize a, um, a black and white, um, Organization together that would uh, that would be something which you know that Martin Luther King would come along twenty years later this was in nineteen thirty nine mm-hmm. I'm talking about or fifteen years later and come up with something similar um, We never did get black and white unionism in the south mm-hmm. in a strong manner mm-hmm. well the l w thought they were going to do that in nineteen thirty nine mm-hmm. and of course that was turned back in the Carthy period for sure you know mm-hmm. there was a little
0: residue left over in new orleans mhm mhm, I see so, so it's I was going to say this is. um, We could talk about uh, this for another hour, certainly. We've taken up a lot of your time. I do want to ask one more question, though, and that is about the ILW today. Uh, It is thriving and healthy. That was a question.
1: Yeah, uh, the 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 Longshore Division is, and of course, Tiny's is down because of the recession. However, um, under the container period, the ILW managed to survive and thrive on the waterfront uh they they made an arrangement in 1960 called the mechanization and modernization agreement in which they allowed for containerization to come to the waterfront without a fight in exchange for which they got early retirement no one mm-hmm. would lose a job mm-hmm. they um uh, they got pension improvements and things like that. So there were, you know, Bridges realized that the container is inevitable. Some of his members didn't agree and there was, a, you know, much discussion for, from 57 to 1960 over that. But they finally got to the point where they said, we're going to let the container come in and we're not going to fight it. Subsequent to that, uh, the, the profits, uh, as a result of the, um of the um efficiency that came in have have been very very substantial and the, uh, the waterfront has succeeded very well and they've got good contracts probably as good as any in the country they still have their union democracy and they're clean and the rest of it hmm. the warehouse division has suffered to some extent um they have not maintained their power the the people who run it at this particular point in san francisco are wonderful fred Petra's guy who's actually head of a um sector Treasury. they've done they they've survived okay but uh the employers have done things like run away to nevada to right to work states where where you don't have union rights that are so strong mm-hmm. as they are elsewhere. Um, and so, uh, in many ways, they don't. They, 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 you know, partly the employers ran away to Nevada so they could get away from the ILWU, mm-hmm.
0: um,
1: and they've not maintained quite the same strength. I was going to say,
0: any, anybody listening uh, in the Midwest will know that they've also run away to uh, various states here. Uh, yeah, uh, you see these absolutely enormous distribution centers. I mean, these are uh, really, really large uh, buildings, the size of several football fields. Uh, yeah, that are yeah, in yeah. the middle of nowhere. <laughs> you see them? Yes, you have the same in the West. What in the hell is that? And what it is is a big distribution center, it's an enormous warehouse. And and so the ILW has not uh, made any headway in these places?
1: Um, they've not they've not kept up in the warehouse side of it uh-huh. to the same to the same degree that they have in the, in the, on the waterfront.
0: Uh-huh. I see. Yeah. No, it's it's interesting. Oh, I, I've, I just the reason I ask is I I was just curious because I see these these places uh, sprouting up all over the Midwest and because uh, the Midwest is a, kind of a good place for them, especially if you're going to be handling traffic by uh, yeah yeah by, by freight.
1: Yeah. Well, the union also the L W in the forties uh, moved into agriculture in Hawaii, sugar and pineapple. Mm-hmm uh and that was a big entity and that's still the biggest local although it's mm-hmm. the the people have moved into the uh tourist industry mm-hmm. and that's still a great big uh, strong local in uh, in the ILW it's uh, the L.W. has a long and rather complicated history. You should probably gather from
0: mm-hmm. that book. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and one of the things I also wanted to ask about before we're done here is that uh, is, is, is this a uh, Iraq War uh, protest? Which I, I'm just guessing, but it looks like the largest organized protest of the Iraq War uh, that occurred in the United States. Am I r- wrong about that? I mean,
1: well, I think you're probably Ten right
0: thousand union members or something. It was really a, enormous and well organized. Um, are you talking about the the 2008? Uh, um, yeah,
1: the 2008. Well, I don't yeah. know. Oh yeah, well it would have been coastwide. Sure, that's the longshore membership. It's actually yeah. bigger than that. And they did a one-day strike, and it was a political strike. And you know, yeah. it took me a while to realize. <laughs> hey, wait a minute, something. this is a political strike. They're yeah. not going yeah, to right. make any money out of this.
0: Yeah, that's what turned it, my head too. Yeah, I mean, they gave up a day's wages, I think. And uh, yeah,
1: oh yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I mean, it was very newspaper.
0: Yeah, that that is an unusual thing in America these days. People well, don't give
1: uh, up their wages. Uh, the ILW has always been has always been anti-imperialist uh, adventure. Yeah, um, right in '03. I sat at the convention and they were debating whether they were going to condemn the war in Iraq before it started. Wow, yeah. And, or on the, on the, if it's starting, in the moment of it starting, and I thought, you know, is we is, or is we ain't, and I sat in the back of the hall and they uh, voted to condemn the uh, war. really remarkable. Right off the bat. Yeah. They they they're, they're, they're really remarkable.
0: Yeah, that, that is, that is something else. Well, you know, Harvey, it's been just uh, such a great pleasure talking to you. You clearly know everything about this topic, and so uh, it's, it's obviously a great privilege for me to, to, Um, get to speak with uh, someone like you, and I think it's a privilege for our listeners to hear you talk about these things. The book is called Solidarity Stories, an Oral History of the ILWU, and we've been talking to uh, Harvey Schwartz today. Harvey, thanks for being on the show.
1: Hey, it's a University of Washington Press book, and I sure appreciate you talking with me. Absolutely. Take
0: care. All right, bye-bye. Bye. You've been listening to an interview with Harvey Schwartz about his new book, Solidarity Stories, an Oral History of the ILWU, I'm Marshall Poe, the host of New Books in History, and I hope that you have a great holiday. I'll be taking next week off to travel to Massachusetts to spend the holiday with my family. So Merry Christmas and Happy Hanukkah and whatever else it is you celebrate. Be well.